Greetings in Jesus' name. I had not even realized it was the 10th anniversary since Oasis began. I don't know if that would have made any difference in the message or not. But I do want to say, like, this is not a cliche what I'm going to say. We say it pretty regularly. I could go home right now and have been fed. <laughs> and I mean that. I don't think I can top what has been shared already. And the lesson that Tim had here for the children just got to us older ones pretty directly as well. So, by God's grace, we will move ahead with a message. I tried to keep it a little shorter. As we uh, are a little later already, and we're having a service this evening. So, but I'm not sure if I'll accomplish that or not. <laughs> so, uh, you can turn to First Peter chapter 4. We'll continue on with the uh, lesson here. Peter viewed the people he was writing to. He was giving, we're in a section where he's giving specific direction to the pilgrims that are scattered in the various provinces, how they are conduct themselves before God and among each other. And I think to say that's us as well, isn't it? We are, in one sense it is. They were strangers and pilgrims. They didn't fit in, and we don't either in our culture. We, there are large swaths of our culture where we absolutely are oddballs to. And we reject them wholesale or selectively, and we can think of pop, pop culture, especially with its movies and its art. And it's clothing and styles and fads and it's excesses and it's perversions. We are, in one sense, we are living as foreigners in this land. In one sense, we are. Like Peter and the people he was writing to. But in another sense, we are not. Unlike Peter, in another sense, we're not. We're not being persecuted like they were. Um, we actually have at this time, in this land of ours, we have special privileges. <laughs> we have rights <laughs> that they didn't even dream of. We, uh, we have exceptions from military. We have, we can school our own children. We have exemptions from the, the some of the government programs, social security, and we're even catered to when we have our hospital bills. We actually have the hospitals catering to us as a people, and we can and we should be thankful for this. That's actually something to be thankful for. But on the contrary side, then we can find ourselves quite fitting, quite at home in our comfortable subculture. And we lose the sense of being a foreigner in that comfortable subculture. And that has a danger. I'm thinking of Lot. Now, Lot had a lot of issues, but he was vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. I think it's Lot that it talks about, or is it in Jude? I forget. Day to day. Jude. Okay. And we are living in the land of Sodom. <laughs> And we ought to be vexed. If your soul is a righteous soul, you ought to have some vexation going on in your righteous soul. 
So, on the one side, we have, we are, uh, we're living, we're in a blessed land, and we have, we have rights and privileges that Peter and his people didn't have. But and that's a good part, and it has a negative part that we don't feel like foreigners. I had a. I'm not going to describe to you, but I, I did go with a training a new driver on Thursday, and I'm not going to describe to you what all he got into because you get bored of all this. But let me just say it: if I would be writing a novel, and I'd like to um, come up with some ironies and devastations, and um, let me see, um, twist. They want to put twist and tragedies in this novel. I don't think I could come up with as many as I found in this one life. A 33-year-old man and the story that he has of his life. It's a devastation. But you meet him. You meet him. He looks like a regular guy. You never know what's behind the scenes there. We are in living in the midst of a collapsing culture. It's a culture that's in a tailspin. Most people in this country have lost confidence in the institutions that run this country. That's true. And, and when that happens, and that continues to happen, that the results are going to be chaos and violence, and eventually revolution. If it continues to go as it is, it does, let me say, it, it's a very potential outcome of what we are seeing in our culture because we have a culture that's in a tailspin. It's just going. It might be reversed, but it's not and uh, not assured that it will be reversed. And we don't know the timetable either. And in light of that, we're going to read First Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 9. Those are the three verses that we'll be talking about this morning. But the end of all things is at hand. <laughs> what a good beginning for a message. The end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober, and watch unto prayer. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. The end of all things is at hand, Peter says, Therefore be sober and watchful and prayerful, and love each other horribly much. Share with each other without grumbling. The end of all things is at hand. Peter, what do you mean? That was a long time ago. Is this what you mean, Peter? Look up here. Is this what Peter's saying? The end of all things is at hand. Then you had the classic picture of a bearded, disheveled old man on a street corner holding a sign. The end is near. Is that what Peter's saying? This comes probably out of a, a magazine like the Times or something like that. Skeptics of the Bible like to use this statement that I just read here as uh, to prove that the Bible is riddled with errors, that it's not inspired that Peter believed things that weren't true. You know, they were just human letters. There were not, there's no inspiration of God on it. They will use a verse like this. The end of all things is at hand. Well, now that's now 2,000 years ago. What well, are two ways to see this statement? One is when Peter says all things, the end of all things is at hand, he does actually not mean Termination. He means consummation. It's not the end, it's the fulfillment. And you could, 
you could describe it this way. You have a child that grows up and you, you nurture a baby and you nurture this child and this young, young boy and he grows up. And finally, at some point, he becomes a mature young man. This is, you could say this is the end of all that went before him, that this is now, he has now matured. He's, it's not determination, it's the consummation of what all this that went before was had an ideal for. Or like, let's make it more practical, um, a wedding. So you have a lot of prayer, you have a lot of thought, and you have a lot of behind-the-scenes activity. And finally, the courtship starts, and the courtship progresses. And then finally, it comes to engagement, and after engagement becomes... Uh, wedding plans and household setup. And finally, the wedding. Well, now the end is here. No, no, no. That's the consummation. Everything that went before was for this purpose. And that's actually one way to look at it. Um, the entire Old Testament, starting in Genesis, and the Jewish nation, and the law, and the prophets, and all the prophecies and all the types and shadows and everything. And then Jesus came. And now the, the, the purpose of all the Old Testament, it is now here. The end is now here. The purpose for that is now here. So Peter could be saying that we are living in that time. We're living in the end. It's not a termination. It is a consummation. And that's one thing to look at it. But... That aside, the early Christians, the early church, the Christians in the early church, many of them, I don't know if I can say all of them, but many of them did expect Jesus to return in their lifetime. There was an expectation. Jesus said, I went away and I'm going to come again. That was as clear as can be. And they were waiting for his return. And every generation of Christians since that has lived in that expectation. And that is a good expectation. What is not good with that expectation, if, if, it, if the hype of his return rises to such a level that you Christians do crazy things, let's say it that way. <laughs> Like, why, why make long-term decisions when uh, 10 or 20 or 30 years down the road when Jesus is going to come back really soon? That's not a good thing. Um, wise Christians hold the expectation of Christ's return with the faithfulness to occupy until he comes. The expectation and the occupation. No, we're not building a kingdom here. But neither are we neglecting the gifts, our work, the exercise of our gifts, to go to the equivalent of some hilltop to wait for his return. And we are left in the dark when it comes to the exactness of God's timetable. We don't know. Like a man that did an experiment he went into a cavern, a cave of some kind, um, completely uh, with a plan there. He went in there with a plan to stay there for 60 days. And he took no clock along, no time. Um, and he was completely isolated from the day and night. It was absolutely no outside light. Um, he had a small generator for light. He had a phone, which he communicated with the outside world regularly, with strict orders that they are not to communicate to him at all what time of the day or night or date it was that was kept from him. He um, So he lived his life. He got up when he wanted to get up. He slept when he wanted to sleep. He had his routine. He ate. He exercised, he read a lot, he wrote down his experiences, um, and he kept track of the days. <laughs> Can you imagine doing that? One day the call came, hey, your 60 days are up. 
And his calculation was only 35 days. And they, they generally do that when people do experiments like that, that your days tend to get longer. You actually stay awake longer and you sleep longer if you don't have a cycle. Well, you know how it is. Uh, children, if you let them go, where would they end up in? <laughs> but it would be just as true the other way. Um, what imagine he would have been going faster and it was seven days, 70 days were up. And 80 days were up. And the call didn't come. 90 days are up. The call didn't come. He's in communication. They're going to tell him. And he knows that when the time is up, the call will come. He knows that. He just doesn't know when. But he's certain it will come. See, God has a timetable. And it will be exactly on time. We are living without the knowledge of his timing. And it is hidden from us by his design. But his clock is ticking just as steadily. Just just think of it. There's a clock ticking and sometime it's going to happen. The Lord's going to come back. Someday the call will come and it'll be right on time. So the time is at hand, Peter said, it means we're in the area of consummation, and we have an expectation of his return. Both are applicable for this situation here. And, and uh, Peter gives it as an incentive. If you look at it, it's an incentive. It's the motivation. It's the reason for what he's going to say now. The time is at hand. Therefore, do this. Because of that, do this. And he says, Be ye therefore sober. <laughs> because, because we're in the consummation, because the Lord's coming back anytime, let's, for right now, let's be sober. <clears throat> uh, this call for soberness is not a minor theme in the New Testament. Uh, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one light wife, vigilant, sober. Titus 2, two that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith. Is that letting you... Now, we, so far, we only talked about men, and we only talked about older men. Do you think that applies to younger men? Does it apply to ladies? Um, the older ladies are to teach the young ladies to be sober. <laughs> um, so if, if the older ladies are to teach the younger ones to be sober, I'm assuming they are called to be sober as well. To love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet. And that is another variation of the word sober. I haven't studied the word up, but it, it's, it's, it's just simply um, part of what they are to be teach. Oh yeah, let's keep on going. Chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. All you young men here, sober-minded. So now we've gotten the, uh, the elders, we've gotten the older men, we've gotten the older ladies, we've gotten the younger ladies, and the young men. Everybody is to be sober. Remember when Jesus cast out the demon out of that man that had a lot of uh, had a legion of demons in him, and the demons went into the pigs. You know what happened to that man afterwards? He was clothed and in his right mind, sitting at Jesus' feet. In his right mind is the word sober. That's the same word. If you look at the concordance. So, he was sober. He was no longer wild or crazy or undisciplined or out of order or out of control. Sober obviously means not drunk, but it's much more than that, sober. So, one of the meanings of soberness, so be ye therefore sober. 
because the Lord Jesus is coming back, because uh, we live in the age of grace, one of the meaning of sober is to have your faculties, your urges, your desires, your dreams under control. Uh, we all have urges and desires and dreams. That's fine. That's good. Um, Hmm, I don't have it in my notes, but it's just coming to me because I, I, I bumped into it this past week. The idea of idolatry. The idea of idolatry is really interesting. Um, when, when Israel had idols, they needed to topple them. They were, they were, they mean, it, like uh, Gideon, he went and toppled his, his clan's idols in the middle of the night. Uh, Moses came down from the mount and there was this golden calf. You tore the thing down. That's what you do with idols. They're wrong. But then there's another f- section of idolatry. It's not that the thing is wrong. It's just that it's out of proportion. And when it's out of proportion, it's wrong. You can idolize any good thing. And... So we all have urges and desires and dreams. And they're good. I mean, they can be. I mean, you can't live without them. (laughs) Everyone has that. Only they are not always holy, and they're not always under control. Food. What and how much you eat. What part does it have in your life? Either in your gluttony... Or it can even be in your restriction. <laughs> Either of them can be an idol. Um, money. How we spend it. How we utilize it. Sex, recreation, entertainment. So one of the meanings of soberness is to have your faculties, your urges, your dreams, it's under control. And it's obviously under the control, your control, and, and you are under the control of God. How is the way you use your phone, your computer? What do you watch? How much do you watch or listen to? Is it holy? Is it controlled? Is it is it beneficial in light of the reality that Jesus is coming back soon? Is coming soon. I had this this uh, number of points here, real short ones, but I had it for a number of years already. I thought sometime I might have a message on it, but I never never did. But it says, sober is maintaining balance in a compulsive world. Every one of us needs to maintain balance because we don't live in a world that is balanced. It's not going to help you. And here are some sub-points underneath that top one, maintaining balance in a compulsive world. Number one, getting serious about life in an amused world. Two, living consistent in a foolish world. Number three, guarding a healthy mind in a sick world world. Four, staying tender-hearted in a cruel world. And five, finishing hopefully in a despairing world. Soberness. You know, the, this world, of the many things it will do, of the many things it will do, one of the things it will do is take your mind away from the things of God and set it on other things. The world will do that. And we don't have to go very far to get to the world. But I remember Denny Keniston saying, he said, in the 1950s, there were some prophets, when television was coming out, there were some prophets who were saying, this thing is going to steal the Christian's devotional time. Just aside from the stuff that's on it, just this thing will steal 
it'll distract the Christians from their time with God. <clears throat> the conservative Mennonites looked squarely and wisely and said no to the TV. And our home was one of them. When I was a child, 98% of the homes in America had at least one television. Our home was one of the 2% that did not have a TV in it. Because of some decisions that were made by before me. That now, our home wasn't perfect, and we had issues, and, and, and not having TV doesn't fall solve your, all your problems. But it does have an impact. Then came the smartphone, and we did say yes. The computer, you have all, all the all electronics. It's a useful tool, and it's much broader than the TV screen. Everything that is true about the television, about its distractions and taking your time and things away, a TV is true about this device or about even computers, but especially the phone. And then a little more. You know, there are some, what do you call them, digital natives. I think is that the right term? Someone who grows up and doesn't know anything else, but we're living in a digital world. I think that's digital natives, yeah. I am really thankful for the restrictions that we have put on, onto, uh, it, that we have put in, uh, that we have in, uh, as a congregation and as, as churches. They are, they are very good. Um, the fact that we have restrictions for youth, the fact that we hopefully restrict our children from the screen to a significant degree. And um, and then we have also restrictions on all kinds of, especially social media for everyone. I, I, really, I really appreciate that. <clears throat> so we have restrictions. But I guess what I'm saying here is um, when it comes to being sober, take a look at your electronic habits and just see which one is controlling you. Are you maintaining soberness in this area or not? That was That's my challenge here. Soberness, maintaining balance in a compulsive world. It will be to our own pearl or our children if we fail in this area. Titus 2, 11 to 13, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, <laughs> righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. It's amazing how they put the... the expectation of Jesus' return with the command for holy living. They put together, always put together. A hallmark of a sound mind, sober mind, is that it sees things in their proper proportion and priorities and perspectives. And a sober mind is not propelled about by the emotions, however strong they may be. A sober mind is not falling for the latest trendy practice or belief system. The sound mind is able to discern and see through the hype and propaganda of a movement that is not sound. A sound mind is not given to fanaticism. There's a lot of Christians who have a vision to be like Christ and they have a desire to be spiritually Excellent, spiritually mature. A lot of Christians, I mean, it, it's innate in a Christian, a born-again Christian, to be like the Lord. But are we ready to do the daily discipline of what is required to produce that kind of life? Wishing to be like the Lord Jesus 
doesn't accomplish it. It doesn't produce the critical discipline and skills needed to mature effectively. And so the only way that the burden is easy and the yoke is light is to take it upon yourself daily. That's the only way it will be. You will find it to be that way. Learn. Learn how to live the Christian disciplines all the time. And we had talked about food, uh, money, sex, recreational, time, phone, uh, whatever. You know, you go down the line. Learn to live the Christian disciplines all the time so that you will have developed the habits, the resources, the responses, and the strength, and the spiritual fortitude that you need when the evil day comes. And we don't know when that evil day will come. Well, it comes for it comes to all of us at one point, but there may be coming bigger times in the future. In Luke four, six in Luke six chapter chapter six verse four it talks about a servant is only like his master when he is fully trained. When he's fully trained, when he has fully been disciplined, then he's like his master. And I. And I just thought, like a child, a child has a father who's a carpenter. I don't know if this happens in your your home or not, Josh, but you're a carpenter. But let's imagine you have a father who's a, a skilled uh, furniture maker, or he's he can take a blueprint, and out of that blueprint, he can build a structure. A father can. And he has his little boy that gets his little scraps of wood and a couple of nails and a hammer, and he builds something. Now, it doesn't quite look like Dad's, but it has a beginning, and he's learning, and he's on his way. And if he keeps that up, at some point, he will be like his dad. Spiritual disciplines, you want to be like the Lord Jesus? Start with your little scraps and build. Go for it. There is no shortcuts to being like the Lord Jesus. You snap your fingers and you have a second work of grace and you never struggle with sin. <laughs> I hope you have a sober enough mind to know that that's false doctrine. But be encouraged. Sober mindness. You want a sober mind. You've actually been given it. Remember that familiar verse in 2 Timothy 1.7, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear. That's not what we have, but he hath given us this. Power and love and a sound mind. And that sound mind is the sober mind. God actually has given it to us, but we need to exercise it. The germ is in it. We are called to believe it and to walk in by faith and make our decisions in accordance. So be you therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Watch. Sober and watch. Watch and pray. And watch is, it's, it's, it's meaning. It, it's not related. The Greek words aren't related, but the meanings are very close together. It has a little bit in fact, the Greek word is translated sober at least half the time in the King James Version of the Bible. This word, watch, is translated sober. So they are connected with their meaning. But it has more of the idea of alertness. And the word that's best to use is circumspect, which is an old English word we don't use much anymore. Someone under 20... Can you tell me what the word circumspect means? Now you put me in the spot because I didn't look at the definition myself. Relevant. Hmm? Relevant. 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 No, no, nah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't call it relevant. Nope. Uh, under twenty-five. Under twenty. <laughs> Mm-hmm. The, the base spec, yep. spec, like respect, inspect, all those spec words, and you pretty much have the idea. Circum. 
Okay. Under 20. You got it from a teacher. Circum. And you put inspect. Spect. What do you think it might mean? So I rise it up to 25? <laughs> Think of a rapid. Think of a rapid. Out in, an, out in the open field. And watch that rapid doing. It is inspecting everything around it. So if a hawk or if it's, or, or the dog, anything can come running. That rapid is looking around. That's just John D. Martin's illustration. Circumspect. That rapid is circumspect. It is looking all around. It is watchful. Because if it is not alert, it's life or death for that rapid. That's what it means. Is, is that, that close to your idea there? Okay. A lack of alertness means certain death for a rapid. And First uh, Peter five eight, we're gonna we'll be there in about a half a year. Be sober, be vigilant, and that word "be sober" is actually that word "be watchful" and that "be vigilant" is just together. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. So I want you to think in a scale of 1 to 10. I think this is a personal inventory to each one of us here. On a scale of 1 to 10, how alert are you to the deceptions and the allurements of the enemy? Because this says be watchful is a command and each one of us is watchful somewhere on that scale. As a, compared to what? What do you think? <laughs> Any comparison? In other words, what is that compared to that rapid is watchful compared to what? Well, it, it's just alert. Are you alert? Or are you half asleep? Pretty well, that's pretty well what it is. Um, but for us, see, the thing about the rapid it's, if he's not alert, it's a, it's a sudden and violent end. For us, it's not that way, usually not. If you're not alert, it will not be a sudden and violent end, uh, unless you're driving. But when it comes to your spiritual life, it's not a sudden. It is a, it is a, it's part of the deception being asleep and then the enemy gets inroads in your life and you're not aware of it, you're not aware of it because you're not alert. Maybe someone else sees it in your life and alerts you and wakes you up, that's fine. But it's no less fatal if we're not alert. <clears throat> um, so, you need to be sober, having all your... Um, urges everything under the control of the Lord and need to be alert what's happening in your life. That's what Peter's telling us here. Um, and I think being in the word of God and coming to church and uh, the fellowship and things like that, uh, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart, to the Lord. Uh, some years ago, and I don't know if you can still call into not, but you could call into a survey. Somebody did a survey a number of years ago where they surveyed um, different people from different walks of life, uh, a Christian survey, and asked them religious questions. Uh, an atheist and a Catholic and, and, and an Amish man. They got an Amish man on there. And one of the questions they asked is, what is the most important book? And the Amish man said, the Bible. How much do you read it? And whatever he said. And then they asked about some other reading material. What else do you read? Well, he reads the magazines, he reads the newspaper. Well, how, long do you, how often do you read that? 
uh, well. And then the question came back, well, if you say this is the most important book, why are you reading this newspaper a lot more than this? And he had an honest answer. He said, I don't know. <laughs> the survey was interesting. But here's the question. Um, if we're going to be alert, we're going to need to have our minds uh, geared in the right directions. Uh, you, And this takes us back to the distractions, maybe that we are talking about electronic distractions or whatever it is. Um, Psalms 1 is actually the clearest example that I, I have of, of this, this thought here. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, which bringeth forth his fruit and his seal, and his leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. That sounds like someone who's become like his master in time, in time. And it says, the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Be ye therefore sober and watch under prayer. The uh, NIV has the verse there, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be your clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. I like that. Be sober-minded, self-controlled, watchful, so that you can pray effectively, faith-filledly. I think this is an example of where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Is there a place in the life of a Christian for lazy, listless, routine praying? You think that's an ideal we should pursue? Well, it's a reality. Let's, let's face it. Probably for all of us, it's a reality at times. But that's not what we're called to. Have an alert attitude. Like the workers in Nehemiah's day, Nehemiah 4.9, Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto God and set a watch against them day and night because of them. That They were in the middle of enemy territory. They were, they were actually in, in danger of a sudden and violent <laughs> takeover. And so they, in that condition, they prayed and they watched. They were alert and they prayed. And I think the two go together. When we, when you are aware of the issues, the dangers and things, then you'll be more alert and more urgent in your prayers. Holiness progresses out of a direct communication with a holy God. And when that union between you and a holy God is interrupted, uh, by undisciplined or an unholy mind, like a mind that goes places no holy person should go to, a godly person should go to, then the power and grace is diminished in a Christian's life. And and this could be a lot of ways. Undisciplined thoughts. A mind that thinks mostly of self. How do I look? How do I fit? In, what do others think of me? Or it could be unholy thoughts at the lust of the flesh. Or it could be a mind that's just driven by emotions and not under control. Or it could be a mind that is indifferent, not urgent, nonchalant, non-committed, not zealous. All those will hinder our prayers. And I just imagine, you know, walking into a war zone and engaging, and they talk about a real war zone, and you're engaging the enemy. Um, you would like, you would want to use all the training, all the skills, all the abilities, and all the alertness that you have 
because you want to overcome the enemy and you do not want to be overcome by him. That is actually the Christian life. Everything is used to the max because you are in enemy territory. So, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. And the next verse, and above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. What's happening here now, what Peter's doing is he's turning from the vertical relationship with God and he's now just become horizontal. And, and I want to emphasize this. This, this exhortation by Peter is to other Christians in context. Have fervent charity among yourselves. So we're talking about other Christians. Evangelism is God's will. We need to care for and seek and love the lost. But just remember this. Most of the exhortation in the New Testament to love is to love other Christians. So, after all, and first of all, after your relationship with God is firmly established and is moving on, then we come to this. And I think I've seen this pattern before. <laughs> Thou shalt love the Lord thy God, and then to love thy neighbor as thyself. It's actually a continuation of the first. And if the first is what it ought to be, then the second will follow or flow from it. And we actually need the first to do this one because this is calling us to a demanding love. It's a it's an intense love. What did he say? Fervent charity among yourselves. We've been going now for ten years. I just that was a blessing, Dave, that you brought that out. We are called to fervent charity amongst ourselves. That's an intensity. We will need the love of God to do that because uh, loving others, caring for others, is to be done when they don't deserve it. <laughs> now, love has to be qualified. Everything has to be qualified. There's no... I don't know, maybe I can have this discussion sometime, but is there anything like, um, what's the word now? Um, unconditional is the word I'm thinking of. Is there anything unconditional? Does God love you unconditionally? No, he does not. So when it comes to loving, um, Love has to be qualified. You don't love someone and enable them to go on in sin. That's not love. And and I, and I don't know if that needs to be said here or not. Um, it's not loving to allow someone to harm other people. But love is responding, and in this context, sometimes kindly, to unreasonableness. In spite of insult, and I appreciate the children's lesson this morning, Tim, because in spite of insult, in spite of injury from your fellow Christian, from my fellow Christian, I am called not to retaliate. Um, let's imagine you are rejected or there's some unkindness or ungraciousness or even hostility. Or maybe you're misjudged or you're misrepresented. The call is to love and to continue to love. Because we are not perfect. And as long as we are in our bodies, we will sin. We will fail. We will poke each other. Sometimes we may smash each other's finger. Hopefully unintentionally. Sometimes because of our unholiness, sometimes because of our immaturity, sometimes it's just simply an accident. 
but it will happen. Now, I hope there's an avenue open with your brother or sister that you can openly share your heart, your feelings, and your disappointments with them. That these issues that you may be having, especially ongoing issues, don't have to just go on and on and on. They can and should be addressed. But if we, we're, we're called to love one another, we're called to respond in kindness. If we respond, let's say it this way, if you respond in kindness to some unkindness and you respond in kindness, you will keep this thing from escalating. And that is how you will cover, one way how you will cover the multitude of sins. By you absorbing by I absorbing what my brother did to me, or you absorbing what I did to you, <laughs> um, by absorbing that, you actually keep a multitude of sins from happening. Because you respond in kind, then the tendency to respond in kind, and you have an escalation. That is what Peter is calling us to do. Have fervent love for one another, for love shall cover a multitude of sins. And that's what God does for us. He forgives us, and he forgives us, and he forgives us, and he forgives us, and he forgives us. And And we're called, like Peter asked Jesus. The Lord does bring appropriate discipline in our lives. And there are, you know, I don't want to, I can be one-sided here. The, the one side I want to bring out is if something happens to you, don't escalate it by doing it in return. There is right responses. I'm not going to get into that. There are right responses, but one of them is not to escalate or to uh, respond in kind. Okay, use hospitality with one another without grudging. So this basically says our Christian love should not only be fervent and forgiving, but it should be practical. We should share our homes with others in generous and uncomplaining hospitality, and we should use our spiritual gifts in ministry to one another, and that goes on as it keeps on. I got that out of a commentary. The, um, we're coming, the next message will probably be on, on the gifts that the Lord gives us. Uh, Ethan had an excellent message a few weeks ago about inviting the down and outers to a meal rather than your family and friends because he said that the teaching of Jesus was clear that if you invite your family and friend, they'll invite you in return and you get reimbursement. But if you invite those who are out there who have no means to in, uh, get you in return, then then you will be reimbursed in the resurrection. They can't invite you back. That's good instruction. God will reward you. Well, here is actually the other side. There are often two sides. Um, Hospitality to one another. That is actually your brothers and sisters in the Lord. That's who it's talking about this morning. This is a duty. It's a calling and it's a command, just as much as the, the one that Ethan brought up. And uh, hospitality is it's it's broad, and and I'm actually not going to expound it extremely. But let's look at. Well, I'm going to read a few verses in First Timothy five. Honor widows that are truly widows. But if a widow, I think I'm reading in ESV, and I really, reason I did it because it just brings it in our language. But if a widow has children or grandchildren. Let them first learn to show godliness in their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Charity, hospitality, begins at home. It doesn't end there, but it must begin there. 
It must start there. And this is an error of those who will neglect those close to them to minister to others further away from them. Um, there's no way I can look at all the nuances and so on this morning, and, and, and we know of... But, but the point here is there is a hierarchy of hospitality. The error of those who neglect their family for the pursuit of the lost or the needy or anyone else out there. That is actually ungodly. It's even, in one sense, more ungodly than neglecting the needy. Because he said, if you don't keep care of your own household, you are worse than an infidel. So, here's the hierarchy of love, and I don't know if I have it quite right. But it's close. <laughs> I'm to love God before all else. He's first. Then comes, as far as the, the practical hospitality, my immediate family and my extended family and then the unbeliever and the sinner. Now, if your family members aren't believers, your fellow believers come before them, I would say. That's a hierarchy of hospitality, of, of practical care. We, we are finite creatures. We cannot infinitely write out checks. We have a finite amount of resources, of time, of money, of gifts. We cannot give indiscriminately. And God actually doesn't want us to give indiscriminately. He wants us to prioritize. And he's telling us how to prioritize here. Now, in the New Testament time, hospitality was very important because there were not many hotels. And poor Christians who were traveling couldn't afford them. And then you had persecution, which people were uh, moved out of their homes and running and refugees. And hospitality was a major, uh, could, could be the major part so he said, uh, especially here in the persecuted church, use hospitality one with another in that context and do it without grumbling. Do it cheerfully, uh, graciously, because the temptation can be, uh, oh, here comes somebody else again. <laughs> do it without. Today, we generally find other ways to be hosp- hospitable. We can be, can be friendly. That's hospitable. You can share the sharing and borrowing of each other. Not everybody has to own every tool. Did you know that? I really appreciate when I don't have something and my brother has something I need. And if he can do it ungrudgingly, that's nice too. (laughs) Or I have something that you don't have and I give it to you. Lending, giving, assisting. Lots and lots and lots of ways to be hospitable besides just simply what we used to think of having a meal. So here is your assignment for the next week. Here's your assignment. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be sober. Watch unto prayer. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. It's your assignment for this week. So that we stand for a word of prayer. Says, Lord, you are the great God, and uh, we are your the recipients, Lord, of your mercy and grace. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the instruction you have given to us. That, Lord, we confess that we are in need of your grace to apply your word. Lord, we are, in many ways, still a boy, uh, putting scraps of wood together and trying to build something. Lord, help us to build um, from your blueprint of your word to build beautiful structures, architecture, uh 
beautiful, magnificent lives, Lord, that reflect, that, that image your example and they reflect your word. Lord, do that in our lives, I pray. Each one here, we are at different places, we're at different levels. Help us to encourage and bless and assist one another. I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. You see it, sorry. <laughs>